Uh, For those of you that may not have been here last week or are visiting, we began our fall sermon series uh, on Paul's letter to the Romans, chapters 1 through 8. And some people know this, that that the nickname of that passage is the Gospel of Paul. Not that he's trying to uh, write a gospel like the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but rather he's basically building a case for the gospel, saying this is what the gospel is. If you bear it down to what it is, this is what the gospel is. And this is truth for both Jews and Gentiles. You may have caught that in the context as he's writing this letter. He's specifically writing to both Jews and Gentiles, so there's no mistake, particularly with some of the tensions that were going on at the church in Rome. And I gave that background last week. Last week was a little more... I don't know how to put it, scholarly or academic or historical. Uh, This week is going to be a little more specifically in the text and and the foundation of what Paul's trying to build with his gospel. And as he begins building this foundation for the gospel, for us, he begins with this idea that we all have a need. And it's important to understand that. The Jews are not above it. Gentiles are not above it. Don't think you are above it because we all have a need. And this crescendos in Romans chapter 3 when he says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the case that he's building right now. The need is that we are all sinners in need of a Savior. And he's trying to paint the picture so that everyone understands that we are sinners. That it's clear to all of us. You know, because sometimes we play this little game, well, you know, I'm a good person. And really those little things I do, those little sins, it's no big deal. Or, you know, the rules have changed over time. Culture's a little different. We understand better now. When in fact, Paul was writing to the Roman culture, and the Roman culture, increasingly our culture is looking more and more like it was back then. And so understand what Paul is writing to the people then would very much be applicable to us today as we see how our culture is unfolding. Our culture's mentality towards God. Our culture's mentality towards sin. And and so he's saying, when Jesus came into the world, this is the case he's building as these chapters unfold. It's because people had a need that they could not deal with themselves. And God provided the solution by His grace in the person of Jesus Christ. But he starts off with something that for many of us is very unpopular, sometimes uncomfortable, usually unwelcome. And that is this discussion about sin. That also, the flip side of, has to do with judgment and God's wrath. See, we don't like to deal with stuff like that. We would rather deal with the fun stuff, the good stuff, the blessings. Let's not talk about that stuff. And Paul's saying, unless you understand that stuff, you really won't understand the impact of the gospel, the necessity of the cross. And so Paul begins to unpack about what God's wrath is about, why it's there, the pervasiveness of sin in our lives, and the pervasiveness of the fall in the world that we see. And there's ample evidence for both. And and basically what Paul is also saying here is that God's going to allow you to make the choice. 
Either you're going to say to God, I give up. I give myself to you. I've been trying to do it myself. I've been trying to be the God of my own life. It's not working. I give up. Or God's going to say, because you've chosen this path. You've chosen to be your own God. You've chosen sin. I give you up to your choice. And that's this little interplay that's going on initially in this section of Romans chapter 1. Have you ever given up on anything or anyone? Has anyone ever given up on you? When I sat back and thought about this giving up on someone, my mind went to a couple of different times in my life that people gave up on me. The first time that I really remember that someone just absolutely just quit on me was when I was in college. And I was going to my college advisor and I decided to change my major from chemical engineering to a double major in religious studies and philosophy. And my college advisor looked at me and said, what are you doing? And he, was, he, was, he had a foreign accent. He said, what are you doing? You get A's in calculus and chemistry and physics? What are you doing? And I said, well, I've been doing youth ministry and I'm really feeling this call to ministry. So what? I mean, that's really what he was saying. He didn't care. And once it was clear to him that I was no longer in majoring in engineering, he quit on me. He basically said, you probably need another advisor. It was an interesting experience. Because he was so excited about what I was doing and the grades I was getting that he couldn't fathom that I would ever change that. You know, now if I was getting D's, he would have said, what are you doing? But it would have had a different context. Think about that. Another time when someone clearly quit on me, but it became a mutual decision. Was I was in San Antonio just a couple of months before moving to come to Hilton Head. It was about 23, 24 years ago. And I had announced in my Bible study, my men's Bible study, that I was moving to Hilton Head Island. And Bill Rogers was in my Bible study. Now, some of you know that name, some of you don't. Bill won the British Open and the Heritage in the same year. I think it was the early 80s. And Bill said to me, Greg, do you know where you're moving to? And I said, yeah, Hilton Head. And he said, that's like the golf capital of the world. And I said, I'm a racquetball player. I don't care. And he said, Greg, let me take you out for a playing lesson. Yeah, exactly. So if any of you ever saw my swing... It is not a terribly attractive swing. It's become effective, but it's not terribly attractive. So Bill took me out. He started telling me I needed to work on this, and I needed to work on this, and it was a disaster. He's trying to cram this you know, bunch of lessons into one playing lesson because he was so excited for me. He wanted me to be equipped so that I could come here and impress people. We get into five or six holes, and I look at him, and I said, Bill, can we stop this? He said, yes. <laughs> I said, I'm just not having fun. He said, I understand. (laughs) 
So we both quit. Isn't that interesting? And see, the reality is, is that God doesn't quit trying. But he gives us up to our choice. If you choose to be the God of your life, if you choose to allow sin to be the focus of your life, you will become a slave to sin. Recognize there are consequences to that. God does not try to coerce us. That is not what God does. God tries to reach us. And so, he says, you choose. It's the same thing he said to Adam and Eve from the beginning. You choose. That Satan said to them, you can be like God. You can choose who you serve, what you serve, how you live. But there are consequences to those choices. And that's what Paul's saying here. And so God will give you up to your choice. And as I said a number of weeks ago in one of my sermons, when it comes to the end of time, at judgment, if we are believers in the Lord, then we turn to Him and say, Your will be done. But if we have chosen to not live under His righteousness, to not walk by faith, to choose contrary to God and say, I don't want to have a relationship with you. I want to be in charge of my own life. Then He will say to us, Thy will be done. You wanted to live without me in the world? You have that for eternity. And Paul's trying to say, understand. Understand. There are consequences, there are ramifications to your choice. And God's giving you all kinds of clues. Just look at creation. What he's saying is, if you look at creation, you see he's an orderly God. He's given you his gospel. He's given you the path to righteousness. He's poured out his grace upon you. But he's given you the choice as well. What do you choose? You have the opportunity. And he says, an interesting phrase, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel. How many people today, if you adhere to the gospel, if you proclaim the name of Jesus Christ, if you walk as a Christian and you seek to live a holy life as God has outlined, how many people will shame you? See, the rules in society have gotten reversed. Back when I was a child, some of the practices that we see today would have been shamed. And now, if you don't buy into those practices, you're shamed. And that's why Paul is making the point. The Roman culture is trying to say, what are you, are you crazy? You really believe 
that there's only one God? You really believe that Jesus came and died on a cross because God's trying to reach you? You really believe in this holy life? These ways to righteousness you're talking about? And they would do the same thing to him as our culture would do to us today if we adhere to what the Bible says. You're ignorant. You're in the past. We know better today. There's many paths to God. Why are you so exclusive with this Jesus Christ thing? It's the opposite. And that's why we need to say we're not ashamed when we make the choice for Jesus Christ. When we seek to live the righteous life. When we seek to uphold the godly life. That we're not to be ashamed. And so Paul says, I'm not ashamed of this when I present this to you. And then he sets the theme. Romans chapter 1 verse 17. The righteous shall live by faith. If you're going to be righteous, then you have to choose Him. The righteous shall live by faith. That's the theme of what Paul's writing to the Romans. It's what we see in the father of faith, which I talked about last week in Abraham, which he will get to in Romans chapter 4. It's a verse quoted out of Habakkuk when Habakkuk the prophet was trying to challenge Israel and saying, you're choosing the wrong path. You're not walking by faith. You claim you are, but you're not. The righteous shall live by faith. And that's why Paul has to impress upon them. God does show judgment. God does show wrath to sin. To unrighteousness. And we don't like to think that way. But if we really understand the heart of God, God doesn't want that for us. John 3.16, God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. He writes to Timothy toward the end of his life in ministry, God desires all men to be saved. All people to be saved. That as we get to Romans 8, Paul writes, He did not spare His only Son for you. That's the depth of His love. That's how much He's seeking to reach you. But God will show wrath and judgment to sin. And by the way, there is wrath built into the universe, to God's creation. And I would put it in two categories, passive and active. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Because God designed the universe in such a way, and he gives us clues by the very structure of the universe, that there is morality, there's design, there's, if you will, laws to the universe. What if you were to say, you know what? I don't believe in gravity. You will have a problem. Of course, it's obvious. But there are people from time to time that try to defy gravity, aren't there? Because it's built in. There are consequences when we deny the truth, deny the reality. 
That's passive. And God's built that into various and sundry sins that we choose to. There will be consequences. Just because it's the way God made things. Active. The plagues. When God sent the plagues on the Egyptian, why did he send them? It was judgment on the Egyptians because he was trying to free his people from bondage. But then he warned the Israelites, I have brought you out of bondage in Egypt. What for? To serve me. To serve me. And before they went into the promised land, keep yourself separate from idols and from the sin of the land. The word separate, he separated them from Egypt, from the bondage. He wants them to stay separate when they now engage with other people. That's the word holy. Separated ones. That's what the word holy means. That God is saying, I want you to be holy. And he says it over and over again throughout the rest of the books of Moses once the people are brought out. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. In various and sundry ways he says, be holy for I'm holy. That's his goal. So that we would live different than the world. We would seek to walk by faith. The, the righteous shall live by faith. That's what he was trying to say to the people of Israel when he released them. That's what he's trying to say to the people of Israel as they enter the promised land. That's what he, tried to say, he tries to say to us. He knows we're not capable of saving ourselves, of living according to his ways. That's why he sent his son. He knows we're not capable in and of our own strength. That's why he sends the Holy Spirit. So that we have the power and the ability to follow his way. But understand, Paul's saying right off the bat, you, you need to know there is wrath. And God reveals himself in such a way so that we all would know he exists. We all would know he's real. We all would know how he operates. Look at creation. If you really, really understand creation, how could you possibly deny that there's a God? I know people do today, and it's increasing in the United States. Atheists and agnostics. I understand that. But one of the, one of the lessons I give in, in the new members class, the discovery class, is it's called the design argument for the existence of God. You look at a watch. You look at a watch. And your immediate reaction isn't, Look at the way the molecules of the universe flew together in one moment and formed this watch. You don't do that. And yet, people say, they look at the human body and they say, oh, it's by chance. Really? They look at a baby. And after counting all the fingers and toes, we've all done this who are parents, we say, this baby's perfect. See, we get a sense of God and his creation. God is trying to reveal himself. We're created in his image. You know, we go to the ocean sometimes. All of us, most of us. And we, and we love to walk on the ocean and just look out at God's creation. Particularly when people aren't around. And we say, it's incredible. It's marvelous. If you're one who likes to walk in the mountains and to see the mountains, we talk about the beauty and the majesty of the mountains. 
And if you ever run into a pristine kind of setting in the mountains or in the woods, you know, you almost refer to it as a garden untouched by human hands. I mean, we love gardens that people design and, and build and plant. But when we see those kind, of, it just gives us marvel. Do you ever go on the Internet? I mean, most of us get these kind of emails where they send you these pictures one after another of all these wonderful things in creation. And it's just marvel. I love to do that. Just periodically in the middle of the day, just take a five-minute break and just look through all that stuff because it's incredible. I don't know if you've ever gone snorkeling to see all the different kinds of fish and the different colors. God is so creative. The different kinds of birds. Just think about the hippo and the giraffe. God's got a weird sense of humor. It's just wonderful to think about God's creation. And you know there's design. And you know there's beauty. That God's trying to reveal himself in so many ways so that we understand. And we understand his power. You look at an earthquake and you look at a volcano and you look at a fire and you look at a tornado and you look at a all the different manifestations and you realize God is more powerful than that. You look at a changed life and we see the power of God manifest in someone's life. You see God bring healing to someone. I mean, over and over again, we can see the handiwork and the power of God. And we have the choice. God's saying, you can deny that you really know who I am or understand how I work or see me in all these things. Or you can say, yes, Lord, I believe. I understand. You look at the person of Jesus Christ. See, theologians will talk about general revelation and special revelation. General revelation is the revelation that we see in all of creation about pointing to God and who he is and what he's like. Special revelation is the word of God and the word of God incarnate Jesus Christ. That's special revelation. And God gives us both any way he can to reach us. And the reality is, we oftentimes still choose sin. Because we want to be the God of our lives. Because we want the path to be easy. One that fits us. And when we really take a step back and consider God's righteousness and ourselves, we see the pervasiveness of sin. Paul's writing to the Romans, where self-indulgence and immorality, sexual immorality in particular, and greed were pervasive. And we see the same today. The same. Why are we surprised? Or maybe we're not. You know, go back to think about us for a second, human beings. You look at a child. You look at a child and you say how wonderful and how innocent and what a blessing and they're so joyful. And in two minutes they can turn around and they can be vicious to another child. Look at a couple. A couple who is so in love. There's such romance and there's such intimacy and there's such caring and they're playing their lives around each other. 
And then a few years later, there's hatred and vindictiveness and bitterness. That's the two sides. Isn't it? You know, when I was writing this sermon series, we were in the mountains by Lake Chatoug. And I love to get up in the morning and spend some time with the Lord. And then I spend several days writing these sermon outlines. One of the things that happens between 7 and 7.30 every morning, because the, the couple that have this house, they have a hummingbird feeder out there, is you see the hummingbirds come around. And it's just wonderful. I mean, I love looking at these hummingbirds and you wonder, what a marvel of nature, how fast those wings go and how that thing flies. It's just wonderful. But this, this particular feeder has four flowers on it, so the hummingbirds could actually come from four different directions. So I see this hummingbird come, and a minute later I see another one dive bomb it and chase it away. And I'm thinking to myself, wait, wait, there's four. Let them go. But no, that didn't happen. The one would only come when the other one wasn't there, and when the other one was coming back, it would chase the other one away. And I thought, wow. Isn't that interesting? We live in a fallen world. We ourselves are fallen people, if we're honest. We're flawed. Not that every part of us is evil. That's not the point. But sin is pervasive in our world and and in our lives. That fallenness exists around us. And when I talk about sin, by the way, there is sin. The capital S, the big one, which is rebellion towards God, which is we say we want to be the God of our own life. And the sins, the little things we do that we love to discount, exist in so many other ways. And that's why Paul makes this list. If you look at the list, it has to do with emotion, passion, immorality, attitude, motivation, actions, the whole gamut. He's saying there is sin everywhere. If you look at this list, you'll find a few that you fit into. Sexual immorality in particular in our culture. It's almost amoral. And that was going on then. The reality is, Paul's saying, we are sinners and we live in a fallen world and we have a choice to make. He's saying that over time, your nature will become darkened. And what's the first thing God created? Light. And when Jesus came into the world, what does John write in his gospel? The light has come into the world. And what did Jesus say? I'm the light of the world. He wants to lift us out of that darkness. He wants to give us sight in our blindness. And he wants us to come to him by faith. But the only way you can do that is understand that you have a need that you can't meet. And that you want to be the God of your life and you don't have the capability And God has provided a Savior for you because we all sin and we all fail. Because He loves us. Because He longs to reach us and to touch our hearts and our lives. When I first read this and God gave them up, it caused me to cringe. I remember the first time I read read that and thought, oh my goodness, and God gave them up. And Paul actually uses, and God gave them up three times. I don't know if you caught that. I invite you to look at it later. And God gave them up, and God gave them up, and God gave them up. The first one begins with idolatry. Idolatry. When the creature thinks they're the creator. 
idolatry. When creation and our own idea of what creation is without God becomes the center, that's idolatry. And all these other sins flow from that. When scripture uses threefold, there's a significance there because it's all, it always means, and this is absolutely positively true. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord. We're going to say that in a few minutes. Thrice holy. That means God is holy. And God gave them up and God gave them up and God gave them up. Guess what? When you choose sin, God gives you your choice. But what I appreciate and love about this, when I really understood it, God gives up on you having the choice, but God doesn't give up on trying to reach you. God gave them up to their sin. God gave them up to their passion. But he did not give up on reaching you. That's why creation is there over and over again to remind us. That's why God sent his son to die on a cross in your place for your sin. God does not give up on you. He gives you up to your choice. You get to choose. But he is always trying to reach you. And that might be why you're here today. Because he's trying to reach you. Or you might have compromised. And you're trying to walk the fence. Which the fence eventually separates and you're going to fall. But he's trying to reach you. Because he wants the righteous to live by faith. To walk by faith. The reason God sent his son is because his heart breaks for the sinner. But the only way that God can get in is if our heart breaks and allows him room to come in. And the only way that we're going to reach other people who desperately need him is if our heart becomes the heart of God and breaks for those around us. See, sin will harden your heart. And God will soften your heart. But your heart has to break for your own sin. To let the love of God and the grace of God rush in. And your heart has to break for other people. If this world's going to change. And people's lives are going to change. That's the foundation that Paul's trying to lay here. We all have a need, a desperate need. And until we come to that place that we understand that. We will not change. But God gives you the choice. And he gives you up to that choice. You choose. Let's pray. Lord God, we live in a day not unlike Rome. Where immorality and selfishness, self-indulgence is rampant. Where people actually applaud sin and have accepted a lie in the place of truth. Lord, I pray that you would open our eyes to what is truly, truly the darkness in our own hearts, in the world around us. Open our eyes that we might see your light breaking in. Open our hearts, the hardness of our hearts that they might be broken for you and broken for other people. 
so that instead of living for self and self-love, we live to love you and to love others as your spirit is poured into us. Lord, give us the desire to know and to love you and to reach out in love to others. Help us to make this choice that we would become the righteous who walk by faith. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.